Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 933. We come to you a bit early this week with a trade deadline edition of the show, which will hopefully not be too out of date by the time it hits your ears. To start us off, Dan Zimborski welcomes Fangraphs contributors Sarah Sanchez and Justin Choi to talk about the wild baseball landscape over the next few days. Who might the Cubs trader hold on to? Is Max Scherzer headed to the West Coast? And are we in a seller's market for sluggers? The trio also talk about Boston's impressive rotation health this year, as well as a wild trade rumor that, for Dan, might be too good to be true. If you hadn't said it, I would have thought that sending Hosmer to Colorado would be something that I made up just to be obnoxious, (laughs) because that would be so much fun for me. In the second half, David Lorla is joined by Jonathan Perrin, former pitcher in the Brewers and Royals organizations. Jonathan shares his perspectives on what it was like to be traded, how impressive Corbin Burns was in the minors, and the prevalent use of substances to get a better grip on the ball. Jonathan also remembers how tough conditions were for players in the minor leagues, and now that he has retired from the game, he is a financial advisor working with a program called More Than Baseball to help players improve their financial education and advocate for better standards continue to fight to help give them resources and continue to push for change because these are players who are the top 1% in the world at what they do and being selected to be a professional baseball player should not suck and right now the life in the minor leagues still kind of sucks. Are you lucky to be playing a game? Yes, but should you be treated the way that you are treated as a minor league baseball player? I would argue 100% not. But before we get to these segments, I must remind you of the Fangraphs.com store. If you're enjoying all of our great trade deadline coverage, for which there is a lot, consider helping us help you by spending a few bucks on some merch. Or maybe a Fangraphs.com ad-free subscription for that baseball friend of yours that would also enjoy what we do. Thank you for all of your support. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Dan Zimborski, a senior writer for Fangraphs, and we are here to talk about baseball's very imminent trade deadline and whether there should be beans. No, no, no. Just 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 a trade deadline. And since my dated Borscht Belt shtick would get tiring for 30 minutes, let's get right to introducing our esteemed panelists who are joining me to dissect our upcoming deadline. First, we have Sarah Sanchez, Fangraphs contributor and co-host of Bleed Cubby Blue's podcast, Cup of Cubby Blue. Also joining us is Justin Choi, a Fangraphs contributor with Big Database Game and who is braving a crazy time zone differential to be here with us. Thanks for coming, guys. Hello. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having us. Let's jump right into it with perhaps the most interesting team involved this week, the Chicago Cubs. They have pretty much telegraphed that they are in sell mode. They've already traded outfielder Jock Peterson. They've sent out 70 sitcom protagonist Andrew Chafin, but they still have Chris Bryan, Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, Craig Kimberland, and others. So my first question goes to Sarah. How many of these players will still be in Cubby Blue this weekend? It's a great question, and it's actually you can feel that in the environment in Wrigleyville and at the park in these games that every at bat feels like it might be the last time you get to clap for Anthony Rizzo in a Cubs uniform. And it's just got this weight around it. Chris Bryant did a press conference after last night's game that was probably the most exhausted and just resigned and sad that I've ever seen him. None of these players except for Rizzo have ever gone through this whole, we are sellers, not buyers. You're going to be somewhere else in a couple of days and you don't know where exercise. And so it's been a really interesting Thing to watch. I think that Bryant and Kimbrell most certainly 
get moved. That seems to be the message that we're hearing out of the front office and the rumor mill substantiates it. I don't really know if they will move Baez or Rizzo unless they get an offer that is better than what they could pick up in the compensatory round from a qualifying offer. Do you think re-signing Rizzo will be easier than bringing back Baez? Because there's an argument that Baez's market might not be that great because you're looking at the shortstop market last winter, you see a lot of probably underpaid guys, Marcus Simeon, uh, Didi Gregorius. Do you think that the Cubs have any hope of bringing back Baez or if they want to? So I actually think those reversed at some point between spring training and now, and, and I'm as surprised about it as anything, but I think the Cubs are more likely to extend Javi at this point than they are to extend Rizzo. And the reason is that the offer they started Rizzo with in spring training was so low that it would have required him to take like a $4 million AAV cut in pay. And he just stopped talks. Like they just never negotiated. He was like, I'm just going to play and we'll talk later. Um, and ever since then, there have not been additional conversations. It hasn't sounded like they're, it, they meet in the middle anywhere in terms of Rizzo's value. He already took a team-friendly deal. He doesn't seem like he wants to do that again. Javi, on the other hand, has really telegraphed that he wants to stay in Chicago. And the fact that he's got some holes in his game that make him a more affordable contract and that he could move to like third base or second base when some of the Cubs' young talent comes up and is ready, I think means that you could see a deal with Javier Baez. I don't think that he has any expectation of like a Lindor-type deal, and he really has been saying that he wants to stay a Cub. It's it's interesting as an outside observer to to Chicago sports because if you if you like if you turn the clock back five years, you kind of have the exact opposite kind of fan feelings about the respective teams and North side and South side, because, you know, five years ago, the White Sox fans had this sad resignation as, as players were being traded. And of course the Cubs were a, a, you know, significant contender, one of the top in baseball. So it's, it's interesting how quickly the the whole flipperoo has happened. Oh, it's totally interesting. And, you know, I am, I am a, transplant to Chicago. So I don't have some of the South Side, North Side animosity that a lot of people who grew up here did. I like the White Sox. I'm actually a huge fan of Aloy Jimenez. It breaks my heart that I have to see him in a White Sox uniform, but I'm happy to travel down to the South Side to do that because he's just such a fun player. It's weird how baseball cycles like that. You know, when you started that question, one of the cycles that I was thinking of is if you had asked me four years ago, who are the Cubs going to lock up and build around for the future? I would have said it's absolutely Bryant and Rizzo. Those were Theo's guys. Those were the people Theo and Jed went after that they wanted to build around. And now it looks like Rizzo and Bryant might be the two most likely to leave. And the core might be a couple of Hendry guys in Wilson Contreras and Javier Baez, which I find fascinating. Yeah, Jim Hendry wins in the end. <laughs> <laughs> at least at this. Yeah, because it's it's weird that it's still weird that there's no Theo. Now, speaking of GMs who have moved on, uh, the Rockies are another team that have some serious questions to answer uh, this, this trade deadline. And they have players that are close to free agency they have john gray they have trevor story and they also have herman marquez who you know it has been a cy young contender in the past the rockies don't have to trade him justin wrote about him recently and i'm curious what kind of return do you think would the rockies require to trade marquez justin i know they're pretty adamant about not trading him this trade deadline so my guess is it has to be pretty steep but you know just like Besides the Rockies being kind of incompetent, if you just look at Marquez <laughs> as a pitcher himself, I think he's really great. He has two breaking balls, a, sl- a slider and a curveball that both have 
these ridiculous whiff rates and also his fastball is not that bad and i wrote about that in on fangrass um, a few days ago about how it's a four-seam fastball but it kind of sinks so it has the movement of a sinker but with the speed of a four-seam fastball which which works you know it works to his advantage to get ground balls and it's a profile that i think would also work outside of course field because well for well for one thing course field kind of dampens the movement on breaking pitches so i feel like it would actually help him in that regard if he got, got out of course and then his already filthy stuff would get even better and so i guess it's a it's a question of how teams evaluate marquez differently so like whether the rockies think that they can get a lot more out of marquez by keeping him on the roster or you know depending on how much teams covet him like non-rockies teams do so I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I think, like, on paper, he would require uh, a fair haul, but as the Rockies mentioned that they they weren't a quote-unquote farm system for other teams, which is kind of... Well, you can say you aren't, but you kind of are at this point. Uh, so I think it really depends. But, like, ultimately, the bottom line is that Marquez is a really good pitcher, and if teams are going to consider asking the Rockies for him, they should be very serious about it. Yeah, one of the ongoing themes I found with the Rockies is there is kind of at times a different a little bit of a delusion about where they stand. Uh you look back when they rebuilt last time, there was kind of an unwillingness to trade some of the veteran players. They never traded Justin Morneau at the top of his value. They never traded Carlos Gonzalez ever. You know, they hung on to Mike Kadire even. And it feels like it's kind of a half measure here. And then you go back like before the COVID year when when you had ownership talking about 94 wins. They say they're not a farm team for other players, but you look at their roster right now and they look almost like an independent league team, which isn't really any better a situation for them to be in, which kind of stinks because it's it's a beautiful park. They still are bringing in fans somehow. I don't know who would want to watch that team, but it is a it is a nice place to watch a game. What would need to happen for the Rockies to turn around their organization? Can they do it without changing fundamentally how the team is run? Well, the last time I heard the Rockies front office is pretty depleted. And I think I saw a few photos of the Rockies draft room during the draft recently, and it was, it was pretty empty. And so I assume that they haven't really replaced whoever left the team yet. So I think that they're still in this kind of weird process where they don't really know where they are yet in terms of how they want to operate financially and what they want to do in terms of either catching up to the current state of analytics or maybe doing something on their own that would better tailor players and the coaching staff to the environment of course field. So all things considered, they probably needs to be, you know, a sweeping change. But, you know, as far as the Rockies are right now, I think that if they do put in genuine effort to become a team that knows their weaknesses and strengths, then they can be a good team. I do. Now, another team that has a clearer idea of where they're going is the Nationals. Before, it looked like they weren't going to trade Max Scherzer, but now all of a sudden, it looks like they're in sell mode. And there were even rumors around Trey Turner before an injury put him off the field, and there was all sorts of conspiracy theories. So my question is to whoever wants to pick it up, where does Max Scherzer end up? Does he get to one of those West Coast teams? He's been linked to San Diego, but he said he wants to go to an NL West team. So... Who do you think has the willingness to give the Nats enough to land him? I mean, I think that any of the NL West teams would have the willingness to land Scherzer. It is wild to think about it now when, you know, at the start of the season, the Dodgers pitching depth was like all anybody could talk about. They don't really have that depth at the moment. They've got 
Clayton Kershaw dealing with an injury. They lost Dustin May for the entire season. We all know what's going on with Trevor Bauer and his unavailability. He may not come back at all this season. They need some rotation help, and that could be a good fit. I think that they would absolutely welcome Scherzer there. The Padres, as you mentioned, have been linked to Scherzer. And I think the Giants would be interested in him too. The one team um, outside of the West that I think is particularly compelling for Scherzer is the rumors that he might be linked to Boston. And assuming that he would take a trade to Boston, that could really just push the Red Sox over the top because they're also about to get Chris Sale back, which is as good of a as a trade. You're going to add an ace just for the end of the season. And between Sale and Scherzer, that rotation would be nasty. It's, it's interesting you bring up the Boston connection because that was one of the big questions I had about the Red Sox coming into the season. And one of the reasons why they had such lackluster productions on my end is there was a real concern about the health of the rotation because they were always going to be without Chris Sale for at least half the season. And then you look at like their current rotation, Ovaldi, Pavetta, Richards, uh, Perez, Rodriguez. You have a lot of guys <laughs> with a huge injury history. And, you know, pictures what they do is they get injured, but somehow the, none of them have been injured this year. The Red Sox have gotten all but three starts from those five starters, and I never would have expected that. If you told me that Garrett Richards was going to be, you know, among the leaders in innings pitch this year, I would have said, you're a liar. Or or was did the season get canceled after a week because of COVID? So getting Chris Sale as an injury recovery is essentially an addition getting Max Scherzer would of course be huge and all of a sudden that team's downside in terms of the rotation is gone yeah absolutely I mean I just looked at the injury stuff I think the piece actually just went live on fan graphs and one of the things that stands out about Boston is how little pitcher war they have lost to injuries over the course of the year which is the exact opposite of what you said now part of that is they weren't projected to have that much pitcher <laughs> war at the start of the year anyway, for the precise reasons that you just mentioned. But it is interesting that they have managed to make that work. I didn't believe it would work at the start of the season either. And here we have uh, Nathan Avaldi putting up what looks to be a 5.3 or 4 war season, and that, that'll play. He's he's nearly at a two hundred inning pace. I'm I'm trying to crunch my numbers. Let's see, they're like at a hundred wins, hundred and one games. I mean, uh, times one point six. Okay, it's not quite there. It's at like one ninety something. But who would have? I I didn't. I actually was curious coming into the season if there would be anyone who actually threw two hundred innings because you have the natural long term trend of of pitchers throwing fewer and fewer innings. You have the uncertainty of of throwing a guy out there after uh, a shortened season left, you know, nobody even throwing 100 innings. So do you think the Yankees and Blue Jays are just out of it now because of where the Red Sox are and what the, the Rays are doing? Maybe not because the Rays, like, they are a good team, but they operate on very thin margins. So basically, if if a few of their bullpen kind of goes haywire, then there's a good chance that they can lose a lot of close games. And also the fact that the Blue Jays have a great offense, you know, that leads the league in home runs, I think, and also doesn't strike out a lot. So, And then you have the Yankees, of course, who, you know, are kind of disappointing this season, yes, but Joey Gallo is such an obviously great fit that I cannot imagine them not at least trying to get him, not only because of that short porch in Yankee field, but also because he's a great outfielder. You know, he leads the league, I think, in outside of average, I think, or DRS, like, I don't know which one it is, but yeah, he's such a perfect fit that I think that he would move the needle for New York uh, somewhat. 
So it's going to be really fun to watch those four teams kind of battle it out for the re- remainder of the season. And I wouldn't really count anyone out yet, except for maybe the Blue Jays, who are kind of right now are on the margins and are kind of competing for someone that they can acquire via a trade. But, you know, I, I think that there's still a very clear chance for them, too. Now, segueing to Joey Gallo, a segue that I didn't intend ahead of time. It seems that there's almost a seller's market for first base DH types, which is something that we haven't seen in some time uh, because the Padres were in on Nelson Cruz. And you can make the case that the Twins got more for Nelson Cruz for two months than the Pirates did for a year and two months of Adam Frazier. And that that's kind of an interesting development considering how first base DH has been valued in baseball in the last five years. It's You don't see teams going after just offense-only guys and without a lot of defensive value. You don't see them going for huge trades. You don't see them getting big salaries. I remember that offseason where Mark Trumbo and Chris Carter led the league in home runs and got very little interest in the offseason. So where does Joey Gallo end up? Because Justin brings up New York. That's a, That would be a great fit for him. The Phillies could use him. The Phillies could use a corner outfielder. The Brewers could use a first baseman. There are places he can go. Does he go to one of these teams or does he go nowhere? Because he does like Texas, Texas likes him, and they would like to keep him long-term. But it's hard to see the Rangers not trading, you know, the the player with the most value. It's not Kyle Gibson, it's Joey Gallo. So thoughts from both of you uh, guys. I'd love to hear where you think Gallo ends up. I'm not sure where Gallo ends up. I think that the Padres are a really interesting potential option there just because he he helps them on the power side and he'd be like a very different look than what they've gotten production-wise from Hosmer. I do want to add the Red Sox here again, though, because they've also been linked to rumors with Anthony Rizzo. And I think that's more than just like nostalgia talking. I think that has to do with the fact that Rizzo would be a pretty substantial upgrade over Bobby Dalbeck. And I think that Joey Gallo would also be somebody that could help out in a similar sense from obviously from the hitting side of the equation. And so it would be really interesting to see what they do there. I I guess the Red Sox will have to give more than finding Casey Kelly to get Anthony Rizzo back. Probably, yes. Bobby Dalbeck, I mean, he is an obvious place that the Red Sox need to upgrade. I mean, we're talking, you know, 12 walks against 104 strikeouts. That's that's a pretty big number there. Uh, I know he's kind of been pressed into duty. He has had limited time in AAA. And, of course, he didn't get a ton of time in the in, in 2020 for the reasons we've gone over a million times. Now, another first baseman who could be out there is Eric Hosmer. The Padres are willing to throw in a prospect just to acquire the lack of Eric Hosmer. Right. Is there a team that will bite on this? Because I tend to think that the Royals could be interested in a reunion because they were a bidder for Hosmer services. But I don't know if this is just me trolling or not. You know, I looked at Hosmer's contract past week and I thought it would be very, very, very terrible. But his contract remaining would give him an average annual value of about 14, 15 million ish. And I feel like for that and a top four prospect in the Padre system, I think it's not a bad idea, actually. Maybe a team that isn't willing to contend, but also isn't a small market team like the Royals, you know, for example. I think that it is an okay idea. And I think, actually, I just saw a tweet from Devin Fink, who is also on Fangraphs for us, and he said something about the Rockies taking on Eric Hosmer's contract and then trading CJ Cron for something else, which is interesting because that is something that I don't think it would hurt the Rockies as much as people might think just because of what situation they are in. But 
it makes too much sense for the Rockies to also not do that. So that's my take. <laughs> I do wonder how Crone would play in San Diego. I've, I I sort of like Crone in Colorado because he gets that park upgrade. And I, I'm just not sure that that offense travels to San Diego as well. I'd have to look at the home away splits to be convinced there. But that is an interesting idea. If you hadn't said it, I would have thought that sending Hosmer to Colorado would be something that I made up just to be obnoxious. Because that would be so much fun for me because, you know, I'm a noted Rockies, let's just say skeptic. I'm a noted Hosmer skeptic. Be good for the Padres, depending on who they give up. It might not be good for me as I as I get a heart attack from excitement and drop dead because, you know, I'm 43 now. So I'm I'm in my danger years for cardiac (laughs) arrest and I don't want the Rockies to literally kill me. But Crone is interesting because a team that doesn't want to pay the Gallo price or the Rizzo price. Crone has been a reliable league average first baseman. He's not exciting. There's no upside, but he's also cheap. And mm-hmm. as we can tell from teams who are are very strongly recognizing the luxury tax threshold, which in all realities is a soft salary cap as, as it's operating. Crone has, has just got very little interest in free agency after 2019, after 2020, just getting one-year deals. I think that Crone could find a place uh, on, on a contender. Maybe the Brewers. Well, the Brewers are interesting because the Brewers got a really big offensive boost when they brought in Willie Adonis. And, you know, I'm a Cubs fan, so I don't love that the Brewers got a great offensive boost there, but I respect it. And props to them for making the Adonis move early. I think that was the difference maker in the NL Central. It's a really big reason that the Cubs are sellers right now. There was such a gap opened up right about the time that happened. I think with them just putting Christian Yelich back on the IL, they are going to look to boost that offense again. So it will be interesting to see where they go with that. I have heard conflicting reports about how aggressive uh, the Brewers are going to be with with at least one person who usually has some pretty solid information predicting the Brewers might just go all in here, not be afraid of money or contracts and just see what they can do. They've come so close in the last few years without actually making a run that they may just get really aggressive at the deadline. It's kind of funny uh, that the NL Central, a division that we thought would be fairly tight, has actually not been tight because of the Brewers. But but one team is making kind of a, a mini run lately. And Sarah, since you're a Cubs fan, I know you love talking about the Cardinals. <laughs> But the Cardinals have been playing better baseball lately. Do they have a chance to make a late charge in the division? Could they actually be a buyer, considering some of the veteran contracts they have? And Mazelik probably feels the heat a little bit. Are the Cardinals done yet? I don't think the Cardinals are done. And and the Cardinals are a really interesting team from a are they buyers, are they sellers perspective, just because of when their contracts come due, right? So unlike the Cubs, the Cardinals don't have a lot of people who are going to come off the books next year. It's like Yachty and Wayno who are probably going to retire (laughs) at that point. Those aren't contracts they're looking to move. And they have been playing better as of late. You know, there's a possibility that they will get a lot of the pitching depth that part of the reason the Cardinals are in the position they are in is because, you know, they lost Flaherty, they lost Michaelis, they really lost some of their rotation depth. And if, if that can come back before the end of the season, they could absolutely make a run. They still have Arenado. They still have Goldschmidt. Harrison Bader is playing better. Uh, I'm actually watching the Cardinals right now, and they look like a team who could go on a run to me. The question, though, is I don't know that they can chase down the Brewers with the lead the Brewers have right now and the pitching the Brewers have right now. 
And I'm just not sure they're going to go all in when it looks like the wild card is coming out of the West, right? So second place in the NL Central gets you nothing this year. Yeah, that that's kind of the that's kind of the tale of the Giants. They've kind of messed everything up for the second tier contenders in the East and the Central. Is Adam Wainwright ever really going to retire? Because I mean, he's he's been around long enough that among his teammates have been Larry Walker and Reggie Sanders. I mean, Larry Walker's in the hall, and he was a teammate of Wainwright. And I never really actually assumed that Wainwright has a contract. It kind of feels like uh, the the Mitch Moreland Red Sox thing, where he just kind of shows up every year, and they they just give him money, and until he stops showing up I guess well the other thing there is that Wainwright keeps finding crafty ways to be successful even as he ages he sort of seems like one of these pitchers who might just pitch forever he might just pitch until he blows out his arm like a Verlander or Ryan or something like that because he keeps finding ways to get guys out until he gets hurt I don't know if he'll ever retire but I think I feel safe to say he's retiring a Cardinal uh, yeah, that that seems very likely. I mean, he's he's been durable of the the, the last couple seasons. You know, there was been a lot of period with injuries. He missed 2015 mostly. He missed most of 2018. But he's he's thrown 125 innings this year. That's pretty impressive for a guy who is almost going to turn 40. I remember when that seemed old. <laughs> yeah. So just fun fact: the top seven pitchers in terms of inning pitched. So number one is Zach Wheeler. Number two is Chris Bassett. Number three is Bueller. Number four is Granke. Number five is Woodruff. Number six is Sandy Alcantara. And number seven is Adam Wainwright with 125.2 innings pitched at 39 years old, which is incredible. My dream is that Fernando Rodney latches on with the team because he was the last player that was older than me. And I don't think Ichiro's coming back. I think Bartolo is not coming back. Either Rodney or Bust for me which is very, very sad. (laughs) I don't know about Rodney's comeback, but one person I have been curious about, and I I wonder what teams thought of his showcase, is Cole Hamels, who's another pitcher that sort of has that Wainwright craftiness going on. He did not have a good 2020. He has not picked up with any team so far, but he had a showcase that seemed to get a lot of interest, and that seems like a guy who could give you some innings. There are quite a few teams that are just looking for innings, not necessarily rotation help that will pitch in October. And for most of his career, Hamels has been a durable pitcher. He started in 30 games for like seven or eight straight years at one point, and he was pretty solid in 2019, which wasn't that long ago. It was only 60 games than another half a season ago. So it would be fun to see to see Hamels back. Now, going back to the Royals before we run out of time, do they sell anyone? That's always been my question with the Royals, because there's, they're, they're always at, kind of seem at the edge of being sellers where they're we're talking about Whit Merrifield if the package was right, but no one was going to give, you know, half their farm system for Whit Merrifield. But they're kind of in a place now where they're so far back that they're not realistically a wild card contender. They have Carlos Santana, who has value. They have Jorge Soler, who I don't know if he has much value, but he's a free. He's a pending free agent. They have Scott Barlow. I mean, he's a reliever. They're not building behind him. Do the Royals actually sell anyone? I think that the Royals might move Merrifield just because I think their expectations for the return have finally lined up with the rest of the market. I've seen a lot of rumblings about that particular move, and it seems like they're no... I mean, I I could be wrong. It could be that their asking price is still too high, but that has seemed like something they're willing to do. And, And I think... I can't remember who said this recently, so I apologize that I can't give them credit for it, but... You know, Merrifield is is hitting a point with them where it doesn't look like he'll be part of their next big team. And so now would be the ideal time to move him. 
And I, I assume that that Santana, they probably don't have the same kind of sentimental value. They don't apply that same sentimental value as they would to Merrifield. Uh, I, I'm always interested by what the Royals do. But I want to thank both of you for joining me. We will find out whether any of these things we have predicted actually happen. Baseball's trade deadline ends on the is on the 30th this year. And for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zaborski. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Jonathan Perrin, former pitcher in the Milwaukee Brewers and Kansas City Royals system. And now, I guess just a few short years after throwing his, his last professional pitch, a financial advisor. If Jonathan's name sounds familiar, you listeners, beyond his, his stat sheet, I should note that he's actually John Perrin on his Fangraphs player page. <laughs> John wrote a guest article for us about 16 months ago at the start of the pandemic and was actually a guest on Effectively Wild three years ago. So we're talking to a fairly regular Fangraphs person here, I think. Right, John? Yeah, I love you guys. Love the site. I've uh, been a huge supporter for, for a number of years now. Really enjoy all the content that you guys are, have been putting out. And uh, super happy to come back and uh, catch up with you guys and let you know what I'm doing these days. Right. And let's go to that. Actually, let's go back. I guess I'll do the informal thing and, and refer to you, John, for, for shorthand here. John, let's go back to your first ever Fangraphs exposure, which was when I wrote about you in 2016. At the time, your plan was to get a law degree, and there was even a possibility that you were going to forego baseball to do that. And I know that the article I wrote included the line, lawyers eat steak and lobster, minor leaguers eat at McDonald's. And I think that's actually a great starting point for this conversation, given a lot of the work that you are doing right now. Yeah, that was a that was a fun time. It, it was uh, as a 27th round pick, non-prospect coming into it to uh, get a call from Fangraphs and get to do an interview and kind of start making some noise across the organization. That was a uh, that was pretty fun for me. And then. Yes, uh, definitely not eating steak and lobster in the minor leagues. It's, uh, you know, McDonald's and PB&Js is more the uh, diet that you're going to be living off of down there. Yeah, for sure. And what specifically are you doing right now in the baseball realm? So these days, I ended up not going to law school. Uh, as I was kind of getting ready to make that career transition and thinking about what I was going to do next, I talked to a whole bunch of lawyers and they all seem to kind of be miserable in their jobs. And I got into investing while I was playing and um, just really fell in love with it and talked to a whole bunch of financial planners and advisors, and they all seemed to love their jobs. So I uh, decided to go ahead and turn and decided to go into the financial planning world. And now I'm working as a financial advisor for an independent firm called Waterfront Advisors out here in Kansas City, where I grew up. Uh, and I do some work with more than baseball as well in the financial education space, helping current and former professional baseball players learn how to get their money right and uh, handle the financial stresses of being in the minor leagues. And more than baseball is very similar to advocates for minor leaguers, which is Garrett. I think it's Brashaus rather than Brochus and Garrett's uh, organization. You're both working essentially toward the same goal, I think. Is that correct? Yes, that's pretty much correct. Uh, so Garrett, uh, it's Brush House, yes, and he, he's been a great guy. I remember I still have the original copy of the lawsuit that he filed. That I think that was about five years ago. Uh, I kept that. Uh, but they're doing a lot of really good work with advocates and minor leaguers. Him and Moreno is the, is the director there now. And 
they're doing a lot of really good stuff, uh, just trying to promote and give give eyeballs to what's going on in the minor leagues at the lower levels, especially. And they've really been able to put some pressure on uh, team ownership to kind of help start promote change. And then more than baseball is a little bit more focused on supporting the players themselves. Uh, we do things such as offer grants for both housing and just emergency assistance. Uh, we were really doing a lot of work with the pandemic last year of helping put money into guys' pockets. And then, for example, with me, uh, we do the financial education piece, like I said. And then there's a lot of other different programs involved with that organization at MTB that are just trying to help give minor league baseball players as many resources as possible to help cope with, like I said, some of those stresses of being at the lower levels of the minor leagues. And with some of the work that More Than Baseball and advocates for minor leaguers are doing, I did just read that the Red Sox have announced some improvements in their system, particularly with housing. But that said, has the minor league contraction that happened this past year really helped conditions much, or has it mostly just saved money for rich owners? There's an argument to be made for both sides. I think, you know, the the pay scale did go up. I mean, guys are making a little bit more money depending on the level. It's It was an average raise of anywhere between 38 and 72% uh, with the larger raises coming at the lower levels of the minor leagues. So salaries did go up, yes. Your average minor leaguer, even at the AAA level, is still making less than $15,000 annually. And 42 teams contracted, hundreds of jobs were lost. So there's definitely an argument to be made that that was just a cost-cutting measure for the ownership group to kind of solidify more control. And the other part of that is, is MLB took control of minor league baseball. So it is completely run by the big league clubs now. And, and that's just kind of led to even more of a power vacuum. And even with the pandemic happening last year and no minor league baseball being played, uh, that kind of created a vacuum, like I said, that allowed these uh, these owners to kind of step in and gain even more control over how things are run, even at the minor league levels. And from your conversations, John, with people in the game, mostly at the minor league player level, was this change good for baseball, especially the part where MLB now controls the minors? Or is it something that players tend to not really even think about very much? I don't think players tend to think about it a ton. I think from a conceptual level, it was probably a net negative. I mean, anytime you're you're taking away opportunities from players uh, between shrinking the number of roster spots at the minor league level, cutting down the draft. I mean, 2020, you only had five rounds and then everybody that wasn't drafted didn't have a choice. You were either capped at $20,000 or you went back to school. Uh, and then this year with the draft being at 20 rounds, and that looks like that's pretty much going to be a permanent change, uh, you're just cutting down the opportunity. I mean, I was a 27th round pick, and under the current situation with the draft and the way things are structured, I probably never would have played pro ball. And given, John, that you give players uh, financial advice, you earned a degree before coming to pro ball, I believe. Would you advise most players who do not get large signing bonuses to get as much education as possible before signing? Yes, 100%. I actually was drafted twice. So I was drafted by the Tigers in 2014 after my junior year of college. I didn't get the six-figure bonus that I was looking for. And I went back to school to finish my degree and then went back and signed as a senior with no leverage for even less money. But at the end of the day, going back and getting that college degree was 110% worth it. 
And uh, I encourage, I actually sent out a tweet right around draft time. That is, you know, honestly, if you're not getting that six figures, financially, the cost benefit of going back to school and being able to finish your degree greatly outweighs that small bonus that you're going to get based on what you're going to have to endure in the minor leagues. And you're probably going to end up having to run through most of that bonus just to be able to live, to take your shot, to stick in the minor leagues for a significant number of years. And the degree that you earned is, of course, helping your bank account in the here and now. But at the time that you were in your minors, in the minor leagues, it really didn't help you. You were probably scraping by, I'm guessing, not sleeping in your own luxury condo. No, I was definitely not. Uh, my entire minor league career, actually, we never had a matching number of bodies to bedrooms in the apartment. So low A, high A, double A, triple A. You know, if it was a three bedroom, we had at least four guys in there. I remember in high A, we had a three bedroom apartment. And then I had a teammate named Josh Ewan who actually slept in the laundry closet. He laid down a bed in there uh, and I, it, it fit. It was a pretty big laundry closet, but he actually used that as his bedroom for the entire year. So a lot of different stories about guys just grinding it out and trying to make it work to cut down the housing costs. Now, there are a lot of stories like that out there, for sure. My understanding, though, from an earlier conversation with you, things actually did improve in the Brewers organization while you were there. Is that is that correct? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so when I got picked in 2015, that was actually the old guard, uh, different different management. And then that offseason is when the David Stearns regime came in and started started making some changes. And, and they really did make a, a concentrated effort to invest in the minor leagues. In my three and a half years with that organization, I definitely saw an improvement. Uh, they started providing more meals, better quality meals in both spring training and at all the affiliates, investing in player development. Uh, right after I got traded to the Royals that next spring training, they opened up the uh, $60 million spring training complex, and they immediately went from by far the worst complex in Arizona to one of the best, including a pitching lab that's helped you know really ignite some careers, you know. Corbin Burns went into that pitching lab after struggling a bit in the big leagues, and now he's doing what he's doing and is a major league all-star. So uh, you can definitely see the benefits of investing in your in your minor league system and your player development system uh, paying off now for that organization at the big league level. Yeah, we should maybe touch, John, a little bit on Corbin Burns, given his ascent into an elite pitcher. You were with him at which level? I was with him in AA in Biloxi and AAA in Colorado Springs, actually. Wow. So a couple of seasons. What do you recall about Corbin Burns? Did you see that much talent at the time? Oh my goodness. Yes. When he first got to double A, that was, I believe that was 2017. And he had come up in the middle of the year because he was just killing everyone in high A. And he got up to double A and it was the same thing. I mean, he was at the time he was going like, I mean, he wasn't throwing quite as hard as he is now, but he was still like 92 to 95 with that cutter and just nobody could touch him. And uh, and we were just like, oh my goodness, this guy's disgusting. How was this guy not a first round pick? Like we couldn't believe he slid all the way to the fourth round. And then the following year in 18, he had a little bit of a struggle in AAA with the altitude and in Colorado Springs. But then, uh, you know, he ended up going into that pitching lab, really dove into the analytics side of it, learned how to kind of tunnel his pitches and get his pitches to work off of each other. And he's always had elite, elite stuff. So now he's been able to figure out the pitch execution, figure out how his pitches work with each other. 
Uh, and now at the big league level, he's he's one of the best in the game. And I do recall that Burns was a fairly high draft pick, maybe a third or fourth rounder. You mentioned being a 27th rounder. You are among a large group of guys who really need to do anything and everything they can to move up the minor league ladder. And I know that can include doing it in ways that baseball doesn't necessarily condone. Uh, there are some crackdowns, as you know, this year. You know, How much of that did you see with quote-unquote sticky substances? I mean, it's very prevalent. I actually had a lot of respect for Garrett Cole because I think what he said was was spot on. Like there are practices that you get taught from older players on how to how to help yourself get a better grip. I used sunscreen and rosin, a little bit of pine tar, you know, some tyrus, sticky grip, whatever whatever it was. I mean, when you're when you're down in Florida and Mississippi trying to pitch in 99 degree heat with 90 percent humidity, and you're your hand is sweaty, like you, you got to do something because you're also throwing these balls that depending on the day, you know, like a lot of guys have talked about, the ball's not rubbed up consistently. They vary from ball to ball and it's, it's not, it's just a way to get consistency more than anything. Now the spider tax and, and even, you know, maybe pine tar in a way. Yes, of course it absolutely helps your spin rate. I, I definitely experimented with that in the off season. You'd be on Rapsodo throwing your bullpens and you'd you know, you'd warm up naked, you'd throw like your first 10 pitches naked, you know, see how that works. And then you go get a little sunscreen and rosin or a little pelican or whatever it was, just a little tack just to see. And you're like, oh, look, there's another 150 RPMs on the fastball or the curveball. So does it affect pitch quality? Absolutely. Do guys need something to probably help them get a grip, especially with big league balls and the inconsistency of the ball? A hundred percent. And I think that there's going to have to be some sort of middle ground there where either you have an approved substance that you can use during a game, such as maybe it's sunscreen and rosin, which I don't think really affects spin rate more than it does just giving you a little bit of tack on the ball. So it doesn't feel like it's sliding, but yes, that's, it's super prevalent. Now that they're cracking down, it's obviously much tougher, and we've seen that with the spin rate data that's been reported on on your guys' site. I mean, it's down. There's a reason it's down. It's because guys can't use anything anymore. One reason, maybe even the main reason that we spoke uh, originally in uh, – what year did I say it was, John? 2016, right, yes, yeah. <laughs> was because your walk strikeout rate was insane. You basically walked nobody. Do you think that your walk rate would have been that low if you were throwing a baseball with nothing to help the grip? Oh, no shot. No shot. I I mean, I'll tell you right now, every single game of my professional career, I was using sticky stuff, whether it was sunscreen and rosin or in the cold in Wisconsin or uh, the heat of Florida. It was maybe a little bit of tar if it was really bad. But no, I, it, the ball slides out of your hand. I mean, some of the, like I said, the ball is not consistent. It's not like a basketball or a football where it, it's pretty much the same every time the ball is different from ball to ball and you use dozens and dozens of them throughout a start. So I, you know, you need a little something to make it feel consistent. So I definitely don't think that my walk, my walk rate would have hundred percent went up if I wasn't using something to help me get a grip. And with the movement profiles in mind, you know, we had mentioned the draft earlier know for a fact that scouting directors were very cognizant of the fact that some of the pitchers they were scouting may have been using substances to make their pitches better. I would have to believe that with the trade deadline coming up on Friday, 
it's probably the same thing. It might be a danger for a team to trade for a player, not really knowing what the rest of his season will be like. Uh, agreed. Yeah, I think I think at the major league level, particularly, you're not going to have to worry about that so much because the crackdown is so uniform league wide. Uh, but at the amateur level, for sure. I mean, with all the data that teams have now and even guys that I was having meetings with that were going to be top picks. I mean, the amount of data that they have from TrackMan or Rapsodo or or anything like that. I mean, it definitely you're definitely going to see guys that that they're going to get into pro ball after they sign and the stuff's going to back up significantly and everyone's going to be kind of scratching their heads. And well, the the easy answer to that is well, in high school baseball, you could use a little sunscreen and rosin or a little bit of tar on the ball and you can get that extra few hundred RPMs where now you're having to get cracked down. Umpires are checking you every half inning and and you're out there throwing naked and that's going to that's going to cause your spin and your stuff to back up a little bit. And some of my thought process, John, with the the trade idea, be it a player in the majors or even in the minors, the data that you mentioned showing that spin rates will go down, teams will have to ascertain, you know, make an educated guess of whether or not, well, can this player adapt to being effective without that extra spin? Because not every pitcher is created equal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And different different guys that have different movement profiles, it, it depends on what your spin rate looks like, right? Like if you're a four-seam curveball guy and you spin, you spin the heck out of it and you pitch up at the zone with your fastball and you're throwing hammers off of that down, then yes, if, you're, if your spin rate backs up 150, 200 RPMs, that's a much more significant difference than if you're a, a sinker, slider, pitch-to-contact type guy, for sure. And with the trade deadline in mind, what type of trade experiences did you have in pro ball? You were around people who got traded, I am, I am certain, or at least were, were in rumors. Yes, I, I was traded. I was actually traded after the deadline uh, in the minor leagues. I was traded on like August 7th. Uh, so that is, I've got some experience with that. But yes, especially, you know, as when you get into that double A, triple A locker room and you've got guys that are legitimate pieces that could be traded for rentals or, or impact guys at the big league level, you know, in mid late July, you definitely start hearing those grumblings in the clubhouse with different prospects, you know, because if you're in a winning club, like in 2018, with the Brewers, I mean, they were they ended up going to the NLCS. So you had guys in the clubhouse that were like, "Oh man, I you know I want to get traded. I'm you know I'm not going to play over Yelich. Why can't you know? Or I'm not going to play over Kane. Why can't I just get traded out of here and go start in the big league somewhere else? You know, because if you are on a contender team that's a buyer at the deadline, I mean, and you're a Double A prospect or a Triple A prospect that's kind of knocking on the door, chances are the guy in the big leagues at your spot's probably an impact player. Or they're trying to go get an impact player in that position to fill the role to get them over the hump. So yeah, you're probably more more inclined to want to get out of there and try and go get traded to a, a lesser club that's a seller at the deadline uh, to have more opportunities for a roster spot at the big league level for sure. As a reporter, I am very used to hearing players say things like, I only worry about what I can control. That said, come Friday when players report to, uh, you know, report time, maybe, you know, 1230, one o'clock, whatever, they will be in the clubhouse and on the field for several hours before the trade deadline. Are a lot of them very cognizant of that? Uh, there's a few. I think for the most part, you're right. Like the cliche is the cliche for a reason. Like you can't really try and focus on that. 
you just got to go out there and try and get mentally ready to play a baseball game and, and kind of whatever happens, happens. But I'm sure guys have been in contact with their agents and, and there's at least a little bit of merit to some of those rumors. And the guys that have a chance of being moved are probably at least aware of that fact going into it. But honestly, like when I got traded, it was a complete surprise. We were we were getting ready to go on the bus. Uh, I was, you know, we were leaving at eight o'clock in the morning and I walked up I was getting on the bus and my manager told me to get off the bus and meet him in the, in in his office and walked in there he's like hey get all your stuff off you're uh you're not going with us this this trip uh we think you might be involved in a deal uh and if not then congratulations you get a couple days off and we'll see you when we get back home uh and then I ended up having to sit around all day and and wait for a phone call and then eventually the farm director Tom Flanagan finally called me about oh I don't know 4 or 5 p.m and said, hey, okay, yep, confirmed, like you've been traded to the Royals, uh, farm director from them will be getting in contact with you here shortly. So uh, it's definitely just a super weird experience if you do end up being involved in a trade. And being a minor league player at the time, John, it wasn't like the big league team was going to spend a lot of money shipping everything and helping you out. You probably had a little bit of panic. Where am I going to live? You obviously can't rent an apartment, you know, the following day in any city, correct? Oh, no, it was uh, it was very hectic. I packed up my locker, went back to the apartment, just started started packing up my entire bedroom in my apartment, and then once I got the call, they were like, "Okay, uh, you got to drive to Arkansas from Mississippi. We'll help you with the hotel. Drive as far as you can. Get there the next day. Report to the clubhouse." Uh, but luckily for me, when I got to Northwest Arkansas, which is double A for the Royals, where I ended up going, uh, I was able to land my three nights in the hotel that they get they give everyone. And then I was able to uh, hook up with a host family with another player that I knew from the Kansas City area. Uh, so I was very fortunate. But yes, when you when you do get moved, whether it's sent up or down or traded, it can be very, very tricky trying to get a hold of some housing for the short term. And what about the apartment that you had to vacate on no notice? That luckily, another situation where it was a four bedroom apartment and we had five guys living in it. So the guy that was living in our living room ended up just taking the bedroom that I was in uh, and I was able to get off the hook, for. but I did have to pay that. I was pretty much out that month of rent uh, that I had already paid. So it was a little tricky for sure. Right. So if he was able to move from a couch to a bed, he was probably the guy in the clubhouse the next day high-fiving people saying, hey, Perrin got traded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's still a close friend of mine to this day. So we still joke about that. But yeah, I'm sure he was pumped. He's like, all right, I'm off the air mattress in the living room. I get to actually sleep in a bed now. <laughs> Fantastic. John, there are many different directions that we that we can go from here, uh, but we are running out of time. So maybe to close, just tell me what your future looks like now that you are no longer a big league baseball player and you did not become an attorney. Now, so for me, I am uh, currently in my master's program to become a certified financial planner, uh, just continuing to get better at being a financial advisor and helping people save and invest their money. Uh, continuing to stay around the game. I work with a, a growing number of pro baseball players and even a, a couple basketball players now. And then just continuing my work with more than baseball and trying to continue to bring to light the issues that minor league guys are facing and just 
continue to fight to help give them resources and, and continue to push for change because these are players who are the top 1% in the world at what they do and being selected to be a professional baseball player should not suck and right now the life in the minor leagues still kind of sucks are you lucky to be playing a game yes but should you be treated the way that you are treated as a minor league baseball player i would argue 100 percent not so i continue to hope that teams will change as they are pressured to the same way you know the mets and, and the red Sox and now the angels it looks like maybe pressured into that uh and my biggest thing is going back to the housing argument is uh I hope more teams follow the Astros suit. Astros came out and said they were going to provide housing for all minor league players at, at all levels. And I think that is a great start because by far number one issue that faces minor league players when they're trying to get situated is the housing. Uh, it's expensive. You're in short-term housing. You can't get even a six-month lease because the season's only five and a quarter months, and that's in a normal year. And then from there, I think that would be really, really helpful. And then the next goal, I hope, is that once teams do that, then hopefully we see teams start paying guys year-round because guys need to train in the off-season. And I had to work multiple jobs throughout my career in the off-season uh, to be able to make ends meet. And by just even if you're paying the low salary that you're paying them right now, but you just change that to year-round, that more than doubles the total amount of compensation that each player is making and will allow them to focus on training and becoming the best baseball player that they can be, which as an investment into your player development, which I mentioned earlier, I think just only benefits your big league club. Because if you have better minor league players and players that are developing faster to help you get to the big leagues faster, that gives you a better big league product and that's what it's all about at the end of the day is having a really good big league product that can compete for championships and win. So it sounds like you are planning to continue to work in baseball as much as possible. Yes, on the periphery for sure. I don't think I'll ever go all the way back in full time. You never never say never, but I definitely want to continue to stay involved in the game. I love baseball. I love professional baseball. And I just hope that we can make it better and just a little bit less hard for the guys coming behind us right make it suck just a little bit less than it does in some aspects absolutely <laughs> maybe instead of pb and j's we'll at least get you know some some grilled chicken or something like that hey steak and lobster man <laughs> hey you know what I, i'll leave that to the big leaguers but at least some some decent choices for the minor league guys huh yeah absolutely hey uh jonathan perrin as always it's great to have you contributing to fancraft so thank you for coming on to fangraphs audio thanks david always a pleasure great talking with you this has been fangraphs audio Thank you to Jonathan Perrin for joining us. If podcasts are too slow for you and you need true live trade deadline coverage, head on over to Fangraphs.com on Friday, July 30th, that's trade deadline day, for Twitch coverage on our homepage starting at 1 in the afternoon Eastern time with Paul Sporer. And that evening, Jason Martinez will also have a special transaction roundup edition of the Roster Resource Show on our Fangraphs Live Twitch channel and the Fangraphs homepage as well. This is all, of course, in addition to the extensive coverage going on every day at Fangraphs, which you can find out about in the Fangraphs newsletter. Thank you for listening, have a good deadline, and we'll talk to you next week.